All right, are you ready to get in the Word together? We're continuing our series. We're almost through. We're not quite there. Six dumb things smart Christians believe. And this is one of my personal favorites that I like to uh, kind of to work on because I think that it's not something that a lot of people that don't go to church often think about. It's for those of us who go to church every week and gather together that we oftentimes will take this mindset and we will use it and we will speak it. Even if not outwardly, we'll do it internally as we say it in different ways to ourselves or about other people that we're looking at or talking to or thinking about in that time. In fact, this is the phrase, I want us to hear it rightly. The phrase is this, God helps those who help themselves. You heard that before? God helps those who help themselves. In a previous church where I've served, uh, there was a gentleman that was rather old. He'd been in church for his whole life. Uh, he knew the Bible really, really well. But the first thing I heard out of his mouth that, that caught me off guard was this phrase, because so many of us think it's in the Bible. Spoiler alert, it is not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves is not from Scripture. In fact, uh, similar statements like that have been made as far back as we can at least tell to about 409 B.C. where Sophocles used it in one of his writings. Uh, it was the English political theorist Algernon Sidney who originated it in the current phrasing that we use, God helps those who help themselves, and probably made even more famous by Benjamin Franklin who used it in his Poor Richard's Almanac. This might be where most people have gotten it from or the, most of us have just heard it from someone else. But I want to tell you that today that that is not a phrase in the scriptures. In fact, I would argue that it is antithetical to the gospel. It is the opposite of the good news of Jesus. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God saves those who have no hope. Let me hear you say, let me say it again to you. Hear me right. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God saves those who have no hope. Right, write that down. If there's anything else you write down, write that down today or make a mental note of it, make a mark, type it into your phone. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God saves those who have no hope. Now, some of us may think, you know what, I, I'm not one of those people. You may think that even, even before I was a Christian, even now as not being a Christian, you might say to yourself, well, that's not me. I've got hope. I've got lots of hope. I have hope things are going to work out for the good. I've got hope that things are going to get better. I've got hope that I can accomplish anything I need to because of the resources God's given me. I've got lots of hope in all these things external to the fact that we need God. And I want to tell you today that I just want to kind of walk through a text that might wreck you in some of those ways, and I want you to be ready for it. Anytime we open up the Bible, be ready for God to work in us and change us and be open to what he's going to do. He doesn't need you to be open because he can break through solid walls, right? Jesus walked through walls after the resurrection. He can break through hearts. He takes hearts that are dead and makes them alive. He can do that with you this morning, but I want to encourage you to listen with ears that are ready to hear. And I want you to be ready to change according to what we see in this place. And today we're going to talk about what you need to believe and how that should affect you. In fact, I want to give you the three things we're going to talk about today. The first thing is that we're going to answer a question, for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? That's the first question. The second question will be, what sustains us after we are initially made right with God? What sustains us after we are initially made right with God? In other words... Once we become Christians, what sustains our salvation to the end? And thirdly, we're going to explore the benefits of believing these glorious truths that we'll see in Scripture. So I want you to look with me in Romans chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 5 and go through verse 11. Now, the reason that it looks weird to you that we're starting at the end of a paragraph is because all of verses 6 through 11 are backing up what's being said in verse 5. In fact, it's backing up everything in Romans so far. 
but we're going to focus just on the most immediate thing that it's pointing to. So let's read verses 5 through 11, and then we are going to, to pray together and ask the Lord to work in our hearts and to make us more into what Jesus looked like. And then we're going to jump in and start to understand what this means for us by answering these questions. So are you ready? All right, good. Let's look at the scriptures. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 and on. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one who will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you love us and you love us beyond our ability to understand. You love us so much that you would not only make yourself known through your word to us, but that you would also make yourself known, especially in the face and person and work of Jesus, your son. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus. Thank you for not asking or making us make steps forward towards you before you would save us. But thank you for overcoming our sinfulness and saving us when we had no hope. This morning, I pray that you would give us hope in Jesus, that you would give us hope in the finished work that he did on the cross for us in our place 2,000 years ago, and that you would make it real to us today that we have hope that cannot be taken away in Christ. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here's that statement again. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God saves those who have no hope. That's the statement. All right, so we're going to back up. What does that mean, though, for us? Who does God save? Who are the people that God saves? We need to understand that. Now, you may think you already know the answer. Jettison that for a minute. Let's let Scripture tell us. Look at this verse. We see four different words used to describe the people that God saves. And that would be all people are these four things. Some of them are saved when they are made alive and they repent and believe in Jesus. Okay, you understand? These are four descriptive words, four words that are declared upon all people, all of us, apart from God saving us, and then he then saves us anyway. Look at verse five, or sorry, verse six, and we'll go on from there. Verse six, here we go. For while we were still weak, there's the first one, weak. We are weak people. That's what he's saying. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died, right? While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died. Weak. This word in that Greek means exactly what you think it means. It means weak. Okay? Exactly what it means. It means that we are helpless in a moral sense, that we are unable to live perfect lives, that we cannot do what is right all the time. In fact, we have a proclivity within us because of our nature to do the wrong things. Now, hear me right. When I say right and wrong, I don't necessarily mean that they're bad things all the time that we do. They may be good things, but they're not for the glory of God, and so therefore they are not the right things. 
Do you hear what I'm saying? Listen again. You may do good stuff to people, but if you're not doing it for the glory of God all the time, constantly, then we have fallen short of the glory of God, and we are not living up to the standard for which we were created. That means that you have then failed and are weak because you're not doing what you're made to do. Does that make sense? Uh, I've used the illustration before, but if I have a hammer and it doesn't hammer nails, that hammer is weak. And it's not doing what it's made to do, and therefore it is not accomplishing its intended purpose. And we are the same. If we're not living with everything for God's glory, we are, we've all fallen short of that glory. And none of us, none of us can say that we are anything except that. Because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We've not lived up to the standard for which we were made to live, which is to reflect his perfect goodness, his righteousness, his perfection, his love, his joy. I mean, we've fallen in these areas all the time, constantly we fall in these areas. So we are weak. Go back and look again, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, if you didn't mind the word weak, you probably don't like the word ungodly. It takes it too far, right? ungodly. But it's easy. I mean, this word ungodly just means like what you think it means. It means not like God. But it means more than that too. In fact, the word is used to describe people that are irreverent, that are impious. We could discuss about what it means to be impious or irreverent, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that you dress a certain way or that you speak a certain way. It means that you don't look at God and respect God in the way he should be looked at and respected. You don't speak of God in the way that he should be respected. You don't think of him in the way that he should be thought of, that you are irreverent. You don't revere him in awe, in majesty, the one who could destroy you in a moment. That You don't fear him in a way that leads you to wisdom, as the Proverbs say. It means impious, ungodly, those who violate the norms of a proper relationship with God. And it means that you haven't sought after God your whole life perfectly. You haven't lived your life for him perfectly. You are ungodly. That's what that word means. Look at it again, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen, for one who will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. In other words, he's saying, like, most of us in this room, we would, we would not very often die for a righteous person. We might die for a righteous person, though, but we would surely not die for someone who's not righteous. That's what the implication is. In other words, you might give your life for someone you love and care about. You might give your life for your country because you love your countrymen. You might give your life for your family, for your spouse, for your kids, or for a best friend. But you're not going to give your life for a, for a convict on death row that's a murderer. You're not going to give your life for someone on death row because they're an adulterer. You're not going to do that. He says, of course you wouldn't do that. That's the implication here. He says, but God, verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners is the third word, right? So weak, ungodly, and sinners. He's trying to hem us in. I think he's trying to box this up. What do you think? The word sinners means probably what you expect. It means those who miss the mark, those who break the laws of God, those who don't do those things. We've already kind of covered some of this stuff. Let me give you this. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In other words, he died the righteous one for the unrighteous. That's us, the sinners, the ungodly, the weak. Robert Mounts, if you ever want to learn Greek, get Mounts' Greek classes. Really good. Hard to stay awake in because it's a Greek class, but really good. He says this about this passage. God did not wait until we had performed well enough to merit his love. You hear that? God didn't wait until we had performed well enough to merit his love, which, of course, no one ever could, he says. 
before he acted in love on our behalf. In other words, he didn't wait until we could do a little bit to earn his love before he acted for us on our behalf in love. Christ died for us while we were still alienated from him and cared nothing for his attention or his affection. Before you came to know Christ, if you know him today in a real relational way, you didn't care about him, you didn't seek after him, you sought after religion, pleasing parents, pleasing yourself, getting whatever you needed for you, making somebody else happy so you felt loved, but you did not care about his attention or his affection until he gave himself for you and made that real and applied it to your life. Sinners saved even though we didn't seek it. Sinners saved even though we don't deserve it. Sinners saved even though we could never earn it. That's who we are. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you, he's talking to the church, like us, right? And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, what's happening there is that he has now taken you and he's reconciled you and I who are enemies of God, who are sinners. He's reconciled us back to God, brought us back into relationship, made things right so that he could present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him, although we are not even now, right? He's presenting us like that because when God looks at us because of the sacrifice of Christ, we're declared righteous and good. We are seen as holy and right even though we are not because Christ's Christ's holiness and his perfections have been declared upon us legally. He took our sin on himself on the cross and then declared upon us his righteousness. He took our place. We call substitutionary atonement. He goes on and says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, then you are reconciled to God. All right, keep going. Look at verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, that means through his blood sacrifice on the cross, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In other words, since we've now been justified, 2,000 years ago we were justified, and that means that we are now saved and will be saved eschatologically. In other words, in the end, we will be saved because of the work of Christ. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So here we go. There's our fourth word, enemies. Should you pick it up? Nobody wants to say they're an enemy of God. But it doesn't take much reading in scriptures to find it. It's all over the place. In places you think you wouldn't find it, like in Psalm 5.5, where it talks about that God hates those who sin, hates workers of iniquity. That's what it means to be a sinner. That he is an enemy, he's at odds, he's at enmity, he is in stark contrast to, is against those who are sinners. That's us. You understand? Enemies. Not just not good friends, not just people that make him disappointed, enemies with God. Now I want you to take, this is for your homework, right? I want you to take these words and I want you to go home and I want you to pray over them and say, God, show how now I'm still living in some of these ways. It's part of your homework. Because I think until we understand the depth of our need for the Savior, we cannot understand how glorious his gift of self is to us. Right? So I want you to do that. But let me just give you another verse for about enemies. 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he sent his son to be the sacrifice, the one who would take our place, that would satisfy the wrath of God poured out on him, and that he would be our, not just example, but our sacrifice on the cross. That's love. That he loved us even though he should destroy us because of our sinfulness. And that instead he put his son on the cross, placed our sin upon his son, and then crushed him. The psalmist says that it pleased God to crush his only son in our place so that we could be brought into the family of God. So in other words, right, say it again. These are the four words. Weak, we are ungodly, we are sinners, and we are enemies. To put it most simply, we are the helpless and the hopeless apart from God doing something for us. We cannot earn our way. We've been trying all our life to do the right thing, and it's never enough. You may think, well, I do pretty good. Yeah, because you're comparing yourself to someone else, right? I do pretty good depending on who I pick to compare myself to. It doesn't take much to do that, but when you compare yourself to the bar that God has created for us, which is his own character and nature, we fail the test every time. Every time. While we were weak, Christ died for us. While we were ungodly, while we were enemies with God, while we deserved God's eternal punishment and wrath, God chose to love us by sending Jesus to die for us. Romans 3. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. That means through the death of Christ on the cross that paid our debt for us. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a sacrifice for us by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, we don't do anything, we receive him by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, he let you get away with it so that he could shower you with grace by giving you Jesus, who paid all that debt for you on the cross. So that's already been paid for in Jesus on the cross. Jesus' death is not needed for those who can help themselves. Why in the world would the Son of God die on the cross for people who can help themselves? That'd be a waste of his glorious value, of his life. Only those who cannot save themselves need a savior. You hear me? Only those who cannot save themselves need a savior. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to give you kind of a long one from him, give you his quote, but he just says it in a way that just turned my heart to worship. So I want to share with you. He says, the Holy Spirit regenerates men, in other words, makes them alive, as the result of the Redeemer's death. And who can be regenerated but those who need a new heart and a right spirit? To regenerate the already pure and innocent would be ridiculous. Regeneration is a work which creates life where there was formerly death. It gives a heart of flesh to those whose hearts were originally stone, and implants the love of holiness where sin once had sole dominion. It is on a sinner's neck that the father weeps. It is on a guilty cheek that he sets his kisses. It's for an unworthy one that the fatted calf is killed, who is ultimately pointing to Jesus, who is the calf killed for us in our place. And the best robe is given to him, and the house is made merry with music and with dancing for that sinner. Yes, tell it and let it ring around the earth and heaven. Christ died for the ungodly. Mercy seeks the guilty. Grace has to do with the impious, the irreligious, and the wicked. The physician has not come to heal the healthy, but to heal the sick. That is us, brothers and sisters. 
We are the ones in need of the Savior, even now. Even now. In our place, Jesus stood condemned, so that we might be justified or made right with God. Not because we're helping ourselves, but because we were helpless. This is the good news. That's the gospel. That's the message. That's the glorious grace we've been shown in Jesus. Romans 8, 1 through 4, listen, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Yes, there's no condemnation for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God saves those who have no hope apart from him. That's the truth. So the next question is, what sustains us then? After we become a believer, after we're made right with God or reconciled to God, what sustains us to the end in our salvation? Because here's what happens in most of us in the church world, right? This is when we're already a Christian, and now you're thinking, man, that person over there, if they just wise up and just become, man, if they just trust in Jesus, we get this kind of self-righteousness about ourselves because we're saved now, although we had nothing to do with it, Right? And we look at other people and we thought, man, if they would just do what we, should, what we do, if they just go to church, if they would just trust in Jesus, they just pray more. Man, I wish they'd just believe in Jesus. Why, why can't those people just believe in Jesus? I remember being at seminary. I, I, I'd been uh, there for less than a couple of months, my first semester there, and I went downstairs, lived in a dorm, dorm with a bunch of guys after college. That's weird, okay? And I had some guys that were always in the bottom floor of the dorm. There were two guys always there watching TV, so they always had control. And so I went down there to probably make ramen noodles or popcorn on the stove, one of the two things I ate all through Sunday that sustained me, right? And while I'm down there, I remember a, a show coming on. Remember, my history is that I've been involved, very heavily involved in drugs, alcohol, abuses of those things. And, and so I'm down there, and I watched one of those commercials, 2002, and they have one of those kind of reinvigorated commercials of the, the egg that they hit on the side of the, the pan, and they put it in, and this is your brain. They turn it on, this is your brain on drugs, sizzling, shh, you know what I'm talking about? And those guys started to have a conversation with themselves. And they started to say to each other, man, I can't believe people would be that stupid to do those things. Like, man, they're so, so, such idiots that would take drugs and do those kind of things. And, and I would say it's not a smart decision, okay? I, I admit that. But they were just talking about like that. Man, my mama taught me this. I would never do that. I would never have done that. I never did these things. People are just stupid. They would do those things. And I'm like, man, but who are we, brothers, apart from the grace of the gospel, that we would do worse than those things? Who are we that we would not be changed in a moment to be the worst of the worst if God took his hands away from us? We are not anybody that can hold on and look at others in a way of pity, in a way of saying we're better than them. We are no different. I go to Haiti and I see people there that have nothing. And the only difference between me and them is that I was born here. That's it. That's not my choice. That's by the grace of God that he put me in this place to be where I am. And by the grace of God, he put them people, those people, to be where they are. Wherever you are, that's because God placed you there. Whatever God puts you in the middle of, that's because God put you there. Ultimately, that he might draw your heart to him through whatever circumstances you're in. Hopefully, and certainly, that he might be able to, to do whatever he wants to do in you, where you are, for his glory, for your good, and for the good of others, because of the grace of the gospel of Jesus. Not because we have anything over anyone else. So let us make sure we don't look at people and say, man, if they just help themselves a little bit, God would probably bless that. Or if they would just do a little bit more, maybe we would help them a little more. It's hard. People come ask you for money. They ask you for things. They ask you for help. And you give help over and over and over again. And we get tired of it. 
Man, oh, but the Lord hasn't gotten tired of helping us, has he? And not because we deserve it. Let us not think these things. So then what then justifies us? What holds us? What sustains us? Christ has justified us. Remember, we are justified or declared right with God based off the work of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. And then through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, not by any works we have done or will do, this justification is applied to us at the moment of our being born again or regenerated. At that moment, it's declared upon us, and we are then reconciled to God, adopted into his family. But what actually sustains us in that thing, what holds us in that thing, what Jesus gives us some insight. He tells us some things that are helpful. That once we are his, nothing can ever remove us from his family. Adopted in by God, adopted for the rest of your life. Eternally adopted in and kept. Listen, John 10, 28 through 30. Make a note of this one. John 10, 38, or John 10, 28 through 30. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Listen, if you really are his, if you've really been bought by the blood of Christ, if you've really been changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, if you've really been made alive in the Spirit, if you've really been none of those things happen to you, we never get over our need for Jesus. Never. He's the one that sustains us. You and I don't sustain ourselves after we come into the family of God. He holds us. He sustains us. All things are held and sustained by him. Nothing is by our own right. He sustains us. We never get over our need for Jesus, and that's okay. In fact, it's good. We never get over our need for Jesus, and Jesus never gets over his love for us. You hear what I'm saying? No matter what you're doing right now, no matter what you've been a part of, no matter what you've stopped doing and now started doing again, no matter where you've failed, no matter where you've continually messed up, God loves you so much that he gave you Jesus to bring you into his family and to hold you into his family so that if you are his, you can never be taken out of his family. You can never be brought away. You can never be enticed to go away. You may fail for a moment, but if you're his, he brings you back because he loves you too much to let you go. He loves you. And that's good news. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God saves those who have no hope apart from him. And then he sustains us in that hope. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Listen, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You hear that it says? God is faithful. Not that you are faithful, that I am faithful, so we make it, but God is faithful. And that's how we know we will be with him forever, because he is faithful, because he sustains us. Since Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless because of his work on the cross. If we are redeemed, we only remain so by the steadfast love of Jesus, through the Father's work, by sending him and loving us, and by the Spirit's application of the gospel to us now. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God saves those and sustains those who have no hope apart from him. 
So what are the benefits? Not that that's not enough, right? But here's some practical benefits you will see as you begin to trust in these truths and these glorious truths, believing in them. The first one is this. The more we own our helpless estate, you hear what I'm saying? You have to own that. In order for you really to get these benefits, you have to really believe it in a way that it changes who you are from the inside out. You really believe it. Not that you muster up enough courage, but that you honestly believe it and ask the Lord to make it real to you, to show you the truth. The more we own our helpless estate, the more valuable Christ becomes to us. The more you see your need, the more you see how great the Savior is. You see? Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15, and I'll skip to 21 for this. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The only reason you would do that, the only reason you would live for him and not for yourself, is because he's that valuable to you. And the only reason you see that he's that valuable to you is because you recognize your great need for him over and over continually. He goes on in verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's something to worship over. That's something to celebrate. That's something to give your life to because he gave his life for you. So the more you own your helpless estate, the more valuable Christ becomes to us. Secondly, the more you own your helpless estate, the more beautiful Christ becomes to you. You hear what I'm saying? Not just valuable, but beautiful. So that you long to look into his face. So that you, you notice when you haven't spent time with him. That, that it works in you in a negative way that you desire to get back to time with the Lord because he becomes so beautiful to you on the cross. That you see what he's done for you and it, it turns your affections to him. You don't only just want to please him, but you want to stare into his face because he stared into ours as he died on the cross in our place for us to make us his. He becomes beautiful, not just valuable in the sense of money in your pocket, but something you want to behold, something you want to stare at forever. You can't break away from him. When you do, as soon as you have a moment, you put your eyes back on him. The more you see and understand your helpless estate, the more beautiful he becomes. The more we own our helpless estate, the more exalted Christ becomes in our lives because of that, you see? So if he's beautiful to you and he's valuable to you and it keeps growing and growing, the more he's exalted in you because the more you will speak of him just off the cuff because the more you're enamored with him, the more you're overwhelmed by him and the more he will just be exalted in your life in every capacity. You won't do these things, you'll do these things because you want to exalt Christ, because he's beautiful and valuable to you, because you see your need him and what he's done for you on the cross. And the more we own our helpless estate, the more God will use us to draw others to himself. Just like as in the desert, when the serpents were coming after God's people, in that story back in the Old Testament, God lifted, told Moses, lift up a serpent, this fiery serpent. When they look at him, that he will be, they will be saved. They will not die from being bitten by the snakes. That's this old story. Go read it, okay? Some of you already have. In that old story, that's pointing to Christ in the sense of this, that as we see our helpless estate, that we can never earn it and how horrible sinners we are. The more we see that, the more valuable he becomes, the more beautiful he becomes, the more he's exalted in our life. And the more we exalt him, the more that people will look at what we're lifting up. And when they see him, 
and they see their helpless estate because of his glory, the more they will love him, the more they will pursue him, the more they will adore him, and the more people will come into the kingdom and we get to be a part of it. Isn't that glorious? We get to be a part of saving souls, not because we're good, but because he's good. Not because we're great, but because he's great. Not because we're valuable in ourselves, but because he is the one that's valuable and he's the one that needs to be lifted high. So as we lift him up, he will draw all men to himself because he's glorious and he's beautiful and he is great and he is majestic. And lastly, the more we own our helpless estate, the more God will use us not only to draw others to himself, but the more we will then treasure him in our hearts, the more we will treasure him in our hearts, and the more joy we will have in this life. Listen, Romans 5, 10, and 11 again. Listen to this. The more we'll treasure Christ in our hearts. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, it's like more than just being saved, he says. It's even bigger. It's, it's, it's the next step up. More than that, we also rejoice in God. We also rejoice in him through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Or Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, he intercedes on our behalf. He sustains us. He keeps us there. He loves us. And there it sets us off for joy because of what he's doing for us. Romans 8, 33, 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That means that we are his, that he is on our behalf, that he is still on our behalf, not just 2,000 years ago, but even now he's on our side. Even now. We don't have to go a moment without him. You fail, you sin, you rebel, you repent, turn to the Lord. There he is. He's already interceded for you. He made it possible. You're good because Christ is good for you. You're good because he's praying it over you to the Father, like, forgive him, I died for that sin. You're declared right. This is good, brothers and sisters. This is good. And this is the hope. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God saves those who have no hope apart from him. Listen, Romans 5, 5, the beginning verse. And our hope in Christ does not put us to shame. It doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God's love has been poured into your heart. And therefore, the hope you have can never put you to shame. People won't be able to understand it because they don't have it yet. But the more that you see your helpless estate and you see the value and the beauty and the grandeur and the greatness of God, especially his son Jesus, the more you exalt him, the more you make much of him, he will draw people to himself and then your hope will be spread throughout the kingdom. This kingdom where people are ushered in in this place, the darkness will be pierced by the light of the gospel. Not because you have to go and work hard at being an evangelist, but because you just glory in the Lord Jesus who gloried in you on the cross. That's all it takes. Just give your life over to him because he gave his life for you. Man, what kind of church would we be if we went there? If we understood God doesn't help those that help themselves, God saves those who have no hope. Put your hope in Christ Jesus today. Today. This is the only real hope we have. It's a solid hope for life eternal life because it's been secured by God who loved us even when we were weak, even when we were ungodly, even when we were sinners, even when we were enemies, even now when we still sin against him. He loves us and holds us in his hand until he sends Jesus back to bring us home. It's a solid and secure hope. 
because it's not based on our faltering abilities or determinations. It's a solid and secure hope because it's based solely, only on the blood of Christ poured out for us on the cross. And that's enough. That's enough. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps and sustains those who have no hope apart from him. But God, being rich in mercy, gave us Jesus, even though we could never deserve him. And in Christ, we have hope eternal. Father, I need you. We need you, Lord, as a church, as a faith family. We need you to sustain us, and you are, even when we don't pray and ask for it. Thank you for sustaining us. Lord, we need you to work in our hearts to change us more every day, to show us our need for you, that you would fill us with the love that you give in Christ by your spirit, that we might exalt in him, that we might make much of him, your son. Lord, that you might be made much of in this place, we might come to know you, worship you, love you, and that others might be drawn to you in the same way, that we could celebrate what you've done in Christ from now into eternity future. Lord, help us to love you back because you first loved us in Christ. And help us not to look on others as those who need to help themselves, but as those who need the saving gospel of Jesus. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.